Back a few months ago, I was standing on the pier in current Eleuthera. Beth was with me, and our son J.D. was with me. It was my first time, our first time, to be in current. We were waiting for a ferry to take us back to Nassau. And, of course, it didn't take me long to figure out why the place has the name current. I was watching the water go left, and then the tide changed, and I watched it go right. That's really something. And the truth of the matter is, with a current there or anywhere, that it doesn't take captain's papers to figure out that if your vessel isn't properly anchored and moored by a rope to a pier, that even a boat as big as the ferry would drift. Similarly, when we as believers in Jesus are not careful, then we too will spiritually drift. Hebrews 2 verses 1 to 3 provide a very needful warning to the man in the pulpit and to each of you, my brothers and sisters, in the pew. It's a warning against spiritual drift. First readers of the epistle we call the book of Hebrews were Jewish Christians. They were Jewish persons who came to see Yeshua Jesus Christ as Messiah. And they stepped out of Judaism into a faith, a renegade faith, a risky faith in Christ. But there was a current that was flowing in their circumstances. It was the current of the persecution and threat of Rome and the persecution and the threat of Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. And together those two Oppositional currents would make it easy for the first readers of the book of Hebrews to drift back to Judaism. It would have made things so much more easy. Uh, Rome would have played nice, and the Jewish religious leaders would have patted them on the head, and all of their difficulties largely would have gone away. And some of them did that. Some of them came in repentance to Jesus Christ, believed in him to be their Lord and Savior, and then they drifted spiritually away from that vibrant, life-transformative faith in Jesus Christ, and they drifted back to Judaism. For us, the temptation is not to drift back to Judaism. Very few of us, if any, here this morning are Jewish. If you are Jewish and you're here, you're most welcome. But the drift temptation that you and I have is not to go back to Judaism, but is to go back to the ways of the world. The things that used to command us to jump, and we jumped. The worldview that enslaved us to sin, covert or overt sin. The worldview that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything. That is the drift that we can fall into, that we drift from the lordship of Jesus Christ as Savior to the worldview that cheerfully leaves him out of everything, dating, money, time usage, employment. And so it's as odd as going to the beach without getting sandy. That one of the most surefire cures for spiritual drift is persecution. 
In the other parts of the world this morning who are underground meeting in secret to worship Jesus Christ, there is no spiritual drift. Persecution, curiously, cures spiritual drift. I remember a missionary statesman staying with Beth and me in our home in Canada. He had just returned from India, some teaching at Bible college and seminary there and speaking in Indian churches. And he said to me, Rob, the Indian church is praying for persecution of the church in Canada and the United States. He said not to be mean-spirited, but to understand that it is the church of Jesus Christ which is persecuted, which is least likely to drift spiritually. And it is the church of Jesus Christ which is affluent, at ease, unopposed, that is at the greatest risk of spiritual drift. If Hebrews chapter 1 has the point, don't recant, don't redefine Jesus, then Hebrews chapter 2 has the point, don't drift, don't disregard. And if Hebrews chapter 1's error was putting Jesus under the angels, then chapter 2's error was neglecting known spiritual truth. I'm reading Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. And I will stop there in the middle of verse 3 for now. As I've said, these verses are about how to avoid spiritual drift. And here is the deal. Careless disregard of known spiritual truth causes spiritual drift. Now, you need to know that it's not drift. It's drift. 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 Verse 1 again. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have learned. So what are the truths in this passage that we are not to neglect in order not to drift away? There are three that I see. Number one, I see what we have heard in the first part of verse one. Number two, I see the word spoken through the angels in the first part of verse 2. And number 3, so great a salvation in verse 3, the first part of the verse. And so they 
were not to drift away from what they had heard or from the word spoken through the angels or for, from, so, for, excuse me, from so great a salvation. That's what they were not to drift away from. And of course, the more things change, the more they stay exactly the same. And the problems of the New Testament are the problems of today. Nothing is new under the sun. And spiritual drift sneaks up on all of us, like the VAT increase did. We ought not to be surprised, because to neglect or to disregard what they have heard, or the word spoken through the angels, or so great a salvation, to neglect those things guarantees drift. Drift from Christ, drift from the Word, drift from the church, and drift from prayer. Accordingly, we ought to fear spiritual drift like we dread bills that we do not have bucks to pay. I write in my Bibles, you may or you may not, I have two words circled, drift in verse 1, and neglect in verse 3. Verse 1, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? When you think about it, all of life has a connection between neglect and drift. If I neglect to pay my BPL bill, I drift into no electricity. If I neglect to control my eating, I drift into obesity. If I ne neglect to spend time with my wife, both of us drift into loneliness. If I neglect spiritual truth, which is known to me, I spiritually drift from Christ, from the Word, from the church, and from prayer. And so we can be glad this morning that our verses for today give us three specific concrete things with which we must not be careless, with which we must not disregard, and which we must not neglect. Again, number one, what we have heard, verse 1a. The spoken word through the angels, verse 2a. And so great is salvation in verse 3a. What are these things? How can we understand them? What are they speaking of? Well, let's find out one by one. Let's start with what we have heard. Verse 1a, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What had they heard? To know that, we have to switch back to chapter 1 and verse 3. And he, Christ, is the radiance of his, that is the Father's glory, and the exact representation of God the Father's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Watch it. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What had they heard? The same thing that we have heard, that Jesus 
had made purification for sins. The Lord Jesus Christ, blood sacrifice, a once-for-all-time sacrifice, purifies believers of their sins, purified the first readers of their sins, and purifies the believer in the 21st century of our sins as well. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so the good news this morning is if you are a believer in Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, have all been purified, paid for. You're cleansed of the past, you're cleansed of the present, and you will be cleansed of the future. The fact that Jesus Christ has purified sins is made more understandable with the word picture. The scriptures pull back the curtain, as it were, and let us look into heaven. And the observation when we do so is he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had paid for your sins, past, present, and future, purified you of all your sins, he sat down at the right hand of his father's majesty on high. This is God's sacrifice. He is seated because the Father is satisfied. And so we must not drift. We must not neglect God's sacrifice. You say, how would that happen, Pastor? What would it look like for a believer to drift, to neglect God's sacrifice? Well, for one thing, it would live like you are burdened down by false guilt. That you would take 1 John 1, 9 and mutilate it to think in your head, if I confess my sin, he's not faithful and sometimes he's not just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. There's a bunch of Christians who walk around with false guilt over sin they have confessed and Christ is purified. There's another way that we could drift and neglect God's sacrifice by failing to keep short accounts with God with respect to our sin. So after the benediction this morning, you exit, sign up for mini church and men's fraternity, and then you go outside. And you see a brother's car in the parking lot that you covet. Or you leave the building after this service has dismissed and you start talking about little juicy morsels that someone else is interested in, negative morsels about somebody who's not present in the conversation. It's called gossip. If you wait to agree with God about your covetousness and your gossip until you're back in this room next week, you have drifted from God's sacrifice because God wants us to keep short accounts. When the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, then immediately he wants us to confess it, to agree with it, call it the same thing that God calls it, covetousness or gossip in these illustrations, and experience the forgiveness that Christ's sacrifice makes possible. 
The person who does not keep short accounts with God, who lets the unconfessed sin build and build and build and build and build in their life, is walking away from drifting, neglecting God's sacrifice. Or what about the Lord's Supper? In our setting, it's observed on the first Sunday of the month. Some believers are absent for the first Sunday of the month on purpose. They don't want to confess sin. They know they need to confess sin before they take the elements, so they just stay away. That's neglecting God's sacrifice. Others come on communion Sundays and they refuse to acknowledge the sin that requires them to ask the forgiveness of someone they offended after communion, and so they they abstain from the elements month after month after month. That is to drift away from God's sacrifice. We aren't to do that. There's a second thing in our passage, a second thing that we are not to drift away from, or to disregard, and it is the word spoken through the angels. Verse 2, chapter 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, and I'll stop at the comma. The word spoken through the angels is none other than the Mosaic law. God's law was spoken through thousands of angels to Moses on Mounts Sinai, Seir, and Paran. It tells us in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, this, And he said the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir and shone forth from Mount Paran, And he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones at his right hand. There was flashing lightning for them. And so when God gave Moses the law of God, 10,000 angels spoke it to Moses. And there was a light show. And then Moses was to relay God's law to the nation which he did. The fact that this is true about the angels speaking God's law to Moses is why many of the Jews that first read chapter 1 had a temptation to worship angels. God's law, of course, is good. As a matter of fact, it's perfect. And God's law is necessary, and it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And God's law is a mirror and a prosecuting attorney. The law was given to Israel and to the church to take persons by the hand like a nanny and to walk us to the cross to show us that we can't save ourselves, we can't keep the law. And so the law takes the person and walks us to Christ. 
takes the person and walks us up to the cross. The law is God's standard. It reflects his character. And according to verse 2 in our passage, God's law is unalterable. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, it is possible in the House of Assembly in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas to follow constitutional protocol and to change a law in our country. There is no possible way to change one aspect of God's law. God's law is God's standard. And God's law reveals every transgression and every disobedience. Verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, a penalty, God's law is God's standard. And on the first point, if he's seated because the Father's satisfied, on the second point, you're cleared because he kept the law. We must not drift from God's standard. We must not neglect God's standard. How might that happen? By following bad examples in the church? There was a rural schoolhouse that had a teacher who was teaching rural farm boys and girls arithmetic. And the teacher asked, if you had 10 sheep in your sheepfold and one of the sheep got through the fence, how many sheep would you have left? And a little boy who'd worked with sheep said, none. They'd all get out. They'd follow the first one. When we follow bad examples in an assembly, we can drift. We can neglect God's standard. We can also neglect God's standard by underestimating our sins. Mine aren't as bad as his. Or being self-righteous. I mean, I tick off all the boxes that I'm supposed to tick off as a Christian. I'm fine. We can drift from God's standard and neglect God's standard by being a poor advertisement for God Monday to Saturday. Driving down Shirley westbound, Beth and I noticed on Friday a newly made small concrete block wall. We didn't exactly know what it might be used for until we saw the solar panel over top of it and figured out that the solar panel was going to give electricity to a digital sign that was going to be at, at eye level for drivers that would advertise things from a business. You are not solar operated. Your operation is from the sun, S-O-N. What does your life advertise? Is the advertisement congruent with Jesus? Or do you have to say to someone who's 
observing your life, don't do as I do, do as I say. And so, to circle back by way of a quick review, point one in our verses for today, don't neglect what we have heard, God's sacrifice. He's seated because the Father's satisfied. Point two, don't neglect the word spoken through angels. That's God's standard. You're cleared because he's kept the law. We go on to verse three, the thing, the third thing we are not to disregard, and that is so great a salvation. Verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. You know, very, very few things are actually great. But we (laughs) greatly overstate things that aren't great, and we call them great. Great is thrown around with a great deal of overestimation. But I'll tell you something that is great. It's your salvation. It's great. Great in that it's for all who believe in Jesus. It's permanent. It's complete. It's free. It's great because it's full without competition and unchanging. Your salvation is great because it's divine. It's the work of God, not of you. And it fixes your real problem from the inside out. Your salvation is great because it provides the biggest possible hope. And it's a great salvation because the angels envy it. Furthermore, your salvation is great because it required a great Savior. It came at great price. It has overcome great sin. It is accompanied by great promises. It accomplishes great forgiveness. It guarantees great security. It causes great life here on earth. It brings about great life after death. It provides great blessings. It leads to great inheritance. And it gives God great glory for the greatest possible time period forever. God's salvation is great. Verse 3, part A. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? John Newton was reprobate. He was foul-mouthed. He was ruthless. He was a violent man, and he participated in human trafficking. He was a slave runner. Then God got a hold of John Newton, and John Newton trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to be his Savior and Lord, and he changed, completely changed. And he wrote 
perhaps the best-loved Christian hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. As John Newton became an old man, this is what he said. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. End of quote. This is God's salvation. And you're saved because he's the greatest. And so we must not drift. We must not neglect God's salvation. How will we do that? By taking it for granted. May I get personal? When was the last time you paused, turned off your devices and your television, and simply pondered your salvation? Days? Weeks? Months? Years? Another way that we can neglect God's salvation is by abusing grace. Yeah, I know it's sin, but I like to do it. And I know that God's grace is greater than all my sin, and God will forgive me if I confess it after I do it. I'm going to decide to sin. That is neglecting God's salvation by abusing his grace. When we, God forbid, abuse God's grace in that manner, we are showing no respect for Jesus Christ. And we are showing no love for Jesus Christ. And so we could drift from God's salvation by taking it for granted. We could drift from God's salvation by abusing grace, but we also could neglect God's salvation by having a holy huddle mentality every Sunday. We come here, we park our car, or we ride our jitney, we sit in our pew, and we only think that what's happening here is for the hour or hour and a quarter we're here. And we're a huddle a holy huddle. I like football. And in the NFL this afternoon and this evening and Monday night, there will be a lot of huddles on the field. I'll tell you what doesn't happen in any one of those huddles. Hey, John, that sure was a nice party you had me at on Thursday. Boy, the food was excellent. Where are we going to go after the game? No, in every huddle, the quarterback is going to call a play that's in the playbook, and our playbook is the Bible. And the reason the quarterback is going to call the play in the NFL today is to execute the play so they can score a touchdown and win the game. 
we come together as a holy huddle in that Christ has made us holy. But we don't come together to compare notes, to be social. Not even to run the programs of the church. We come together on Sundays to let God call the play that he wants us to execute in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we, in the NFL, this afternoon, evening, and Monday night, the quarterback's going to break huddle, break. And they go to run the play. Every man has his own job. He knows what his job is to run that play. When we break at the benediction this morning, break. It's to execute the play that's in the playbook that we've just gone over together. The worst thing that can happen to a church is when we are educated in the Bible beyond our obedience to the Bible. I know that. I know that story. And if this can be a bubble of a holy huddle that only thinks about ourselves, then we can go out that door and be individual bubbles that hoard God's salvation by shutting our mouths. I don't like her. I've offered the gospel to him two years ago and he rejected Christ. I'm zipping it. He's not from the same part of Nassau that I am. Do you know what he did? He's beyond the grace of God. That would be inconvenient to talk to that child about Jesus. I'm busy, you know. We can drift from God's salvation, neglect God's salvation, as easy as getting sandy at the beach. I don't know about you, but I have known believers who have drifted from Christ, drifted from the Word, drifted from church, and drifted from prayer. And the truth is that I have been one of those believers. Through my years of high school, I drifted. Maybe as you listen to this message, you know that you too have drifted in your past. The good news is that drifters can find forgiveness in Christ. We can change. God's changed me, and God can change you. Or maybe you're here this morning and it's not that drifting spiritually is your history, but drifting spiritually is your present. You're drifting right now. You can change that with repentance. Today, God's word has told us not to experience spiritual drift. Number one, don't neglect what we have heard, namely God's sacrifice. He's seated because the Father's satisfied. 
Number two, don't neglect the word spoken through angels. That's God's standard. You're cleared because he's kept the law. And number three, don't neglect so great a salvation, God's salvation. You're saved because he's the greatest. And remember, it isn't drift. It's drift. There was a brother in Christ who most of you will know. He had a very high-pressure job. And it would have been very easy for him to spiritually drift, but he didn't. His name was Ronald Reagan. He was the 40th president of the United States of America. At one point, President Reagan's father-in-law, who was an atheist, was dying. Concerned for his soul, the president hand-wrote a letter on White House stationery, and I'm going to quote the letter. He, Christ, has had more impact on the world than all the teachers, scientists, emperors, generals, and admirals who ever lived, all put together. The Apostle John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We have been promised that all we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help when we have done all we can, when we've come to the end of our strength and abilities, and we'll have that help. We only have to trust and have faith in his infinite goodness and mercy. Loyal, you and Edith have known a great love, more than many have been permitted to know. That love will not end with the end of this life. We've been promised this is only a part of life and that a greater life a greater glory awaits us. It awaits you together one day, and all that is required is that you believe and tell God you put yourself in his hands. Love, Ronnie. End of quote. No drift. The president paid careful attention to God's sacrifice, God's standard, and God's salvation. May we do the same. May we do the same. Lord, how gracious of you to warn us about spiritual drift, to show us the things that we must not neglect that we must not disregard. By your grace and for your glory, may we either stop drifting today or may we continue to not drift tomorrow. We ask these things in the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.